0: Well, today uh, we won't be hearing a testimony since we'll be we coming the communion table. Uh, we begin also uh, today, as you can see, a, a series that's going to lead us through uh, and into Christmas. What child is this? I, um, you know, know that you uh, recognize there are the different signs and different uh, pointers that tell you that Christmas time is near. I, I asked a few of our people, "Hey, what does it mean? What does it look like? How do you know that?" it's the most wonderful time of the year how do you know that it's beginning to look a lot like christmas what does that mean uh, to you, what does that mean in, in, in your life? How do you know that Christmas is coming? And people would say different things like, oh, I can, I can tell because of the music that I hear in the stores and by the music that I hear on my radio. And it's all Christmas music now. And, and it tells me that Christmas time is here. Other people have said things like, oh, you know, I see the decorations everywhere. I see uh, Santa Claus in, in different places. Uh, I'm beginning to see red and green everywhere. Others said, because I can see pumpkin spice at different coffee shops. And Starbucks has busted out their red ups. And so that's a sign to me that Christmas is here. Others have said things like when I see Thanksgiving leftovers in my refrigerator, I know that Christmas time is coming. And when I peel off the November and December rolls around on my calendar, I know that Christmas is here for me. One of the things uh, growing up in Virginia, I could always tell that Christmas was coming because the weather would change. It would begin getting really cold. and, And sometimes even before Christmas, it would start snowing. And we would all ask this question, you know, is it going to be a white Christmas this year? So you can imagine my surprise when I moved down here uh, to Florida and December rolled around and it was still the same temperature as it was in November and October and, and pretty much September. And, and I remember seeing Santa Claus like Pictures of Santa on being pulled by his sleigh with scenes of snow all around. He's got his big, heavy red jacket with his big black belt and his hat on, and it's like 80 degrees outside. And I was like, this is really weird. It doesn't feel like Christmas to me. One of our guys says, uh, interestingly enough, weather does tell me that it is almost Christmas, even here in Florida. He said it goes from blisteringly hot to just hot. <laughs> and that's how I know that Christmas is coming. There are a lot of different things that remind us of Christmas, a lot of signs, a lot of symbols, a lot of things that tell us that Christmas is near. But one of the things that many of our people said that tips us off to the reality that Christmas is coming is the presence of lights. Begin to see lights all around. Last night, we were driving through Winter Park, going to a, a meeting for our house church shepherds and, and going down this, this one street. All these houses are lit up in just beautiful colors and beautiful decorations. And just a, it's a, a wonderful sight to behold. And these lights remind us, lights on homes, lights on streets, lights in the uh, outside of, of people's door frames. Now, the new thing is projection lights, right, being, being blasted upon people's homes. And all of these things are reminders of the presence of Christmas, that it's coming. And it's shown by different signs. And one of these great signs is light. You know, about 2,700 years ago, 700 years before the first Christmas, the prophet Isaiah talked about Christmas and said, there are signs that tell us that Christmas is coming. And the dominant sign, the dominant image that he used to tell us that Christmas is here is this imagery of light. In the midst of the darkness, a light is shining. I want to read from Isaiah chapter 9 today. We're going to just camp out over the next four weeks on just one verse. But I want to read uh, the first seven verses of, uh, of Isaiah chapter 9. What does a message almost 3,000 years old have to tell us about Christmas today? Right? Is there anything that it could possibly say about how we experience Christmas? And how we go through Christmas today to to set the context, the people of God, right? Israel had been the people of God at this point in time for some years. Uh, It began with one singular man, a guy named Abram. And God said to him, hey, you're going to become the father of many nations. In fact, you're going to be the father of the Jewish race, the people of Israel. And from you, all nations on earth are going to be blessed. So about 2,000 years before Jesus, about 4,000 years from to, uh, before today, God called this man, Abram, and said, go to a land I'll show you. And so from there, Abram went out in obedience to God. He had a son named Isaac who had a son named Jacob who had 12 sons, and these 12 sons would form the basis of the 12 tribes of Israel, right? So these 12 tribes formed the people of God. About 1,500 years B.C., a man named Moses arose And he delivered these groups of people out of slavery from Egypt, constituted them as a nation by giving them laws, the Ten Commandments. And from that place, they wandered through the wilderness before settling into the land that God had promised to Abraham 500 years before. And so here's this group of people. They're the nation of Israel. They're the people of God. And they're forming as a tiny nation, not chosen because they were great or good or big or strong or good looking, but simply because God loved them. And said, you will be my treasured possession. And so this group of people, the Israelites, rose up and God said, all the nations of the earth are going to see you and see that there's one true God. And his name is Yahweh, Jehovah, the father of our Lord Jesus Christ. And so this one nation was to be a light unto the world. And God said, you just follow me and all these people are going to see how great uh, God is. The problem was the people of Israel didn't want to follow God as king there are times that they did, but then a lot of times they didn't want to. And so they started complaining and God says, you guys need to repent and turn back to me and all will be good again. And so they would, but then they would mess up and they would run away again. And so God would raise up these people called the judges and they would lead them back to repentance. And then the judge would die and then they would go back into their sinful ways again, right? Cats away, the mice go to play. And so they did these things in wicked, sinful Israel until finally they said, hey, about About maybe uh, 1100, between 1100 and 1000 BC, they said, we want a a king. And God said, but I'm your king. They said, no, we want a king that we can see with our eyes. And so God said, have it your way. And so a king named Saul rose, started out decent, but ended up bad. Uh, He died. And a king named David, he he was the best king of Israel. The glory days of Israel were under the reign of King David, about 1,000 B.C., and everyone loved David because he honored the Lord. He he failed, and his failures were pretty colossal, but some of the things that he did were pretty good. He was a king after the heart of God and led the people in that way. But when David died, his son Solomon rose up, and Solomon tried to be a good guy. He was was good in a lot of ways, but his one fatal flaw, as it was with many people in the Old Testament, was that he couldn't handle his own sensual desires. And so he had about a 1,000 different women that he uh, would hang out with and that he considered either his wife or his concubine. And because of that, there was a civil war and the nation was divided. And this was a dark, dark period in Israel's history, but it was only going to get worse. Civil war happens. a nation is divided into two. The northern kingdom is called Israel. The southern kingdom is called Judah. Divided like many, like uh, North and South Korea, East and West Germany, uh, South Sudan, these splinter groups. And so it was a very difficult time. And all along the way, God says, listen, if you live with me in obedience, there will be so much blessing for you. But if you turn away from me, there's going to be judgment that comes either through a bad crop or through nations attacking you. And it's not going to be good for you. Everywhere along the way, you obey, you get blessed, you disobey, there'll be judgment but if you repent, then I will relent from sending judgment on you. Up and down, up and down, up and down it went. You get to the time of Isaiah, and Isaiah in, in the people of God, right? Isaiah speaking on behalf of God to Israel saying, guys, we've got to get our act together because we're, about to, we're, we're in a bad place right now. We're in a bad, bad place, and God is saying, listen, there's a mighty kingdom around us called Assyria, and they're going to They're going to destroy us if we don't come back to God. And so the prophet Isaiah's message was pleading with Israel, come back to God. Come back to God. This is a time when Israel, their terror alert was on high. It was red alert. They were being attacked on all sides. If you were Israel, if you were the people of God, what would you do? If you knew that you're about to get crushed, your homes are going to be demolished, your families are going to be separated, your town is going, to be, is going to be ravaged, what would you do? God says, here's what's going to happen. All you need to do is come back to me and I'll spare you the judgment. What would you do? Wouldn't you do that? And isn't this a situation that may be we in America find ourselves in, that the judgment of God perhaps is coming through all kinds of things that are happening in our nation and God has been raising a clarion call repent and I will relent. Come back to me. This is what God has been saying for decades. Wouldn't it make sense for us to come back to the Lord God, to forsake our idols and to turn away from them and to repent before the Lord God so that our people could be spared. This was a situation facing Israel, but time and again, they said, no, we're not going to come back to you, God. And so like the Israelites, we do this too. God, I'm going to do it my way. The way it was in Isaiah 8, the king said, you know what? It's not going to be that bad. We'll figure it out on our own. I've got people in high positions, and we're going to work this out ourselves. That's what the king Ahaz said. And so in chapter 9, Isaiah is saying, don't do that. That's a bad idea. The bad idea, because judgment is going to come, and it's going to be ugly, and it's going to be hard, and it's going to be dark. And you're going to be in despair and gloom and hopelessness. Merry Christmas, everyone. Into this message, into this darkness, into this mess, Isaiah chapter 9 comes, and this is the word of the Lord. Nevertheless, there will be no more gloom for those who are in distress. In the past, he humbled the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. This is talking about Israel. But in the future, he will honor galilee of the gentiles that's the area in which israel was located by the way of the sea along the jordan and here's what here's a vision verse 2 the people walking in darkness have seen a great light on those living in the land of the shadow of death a light has dawned You, God, have enlarged the nation and increased their joy. He's seeing a better day. They rejoice before you as people rejoice at the harvest, as men rejoice when dividing the plunder, for as in the day of Midian's defeat, at the hands of, of, of Moses, you have shattered the yoke that burdens them, the bar across their shoulders, the rod of their oppressor, every warrior's boot used in battle, And every garment rolled in blood will be destined for burning will be fuel for the fire. He's saying, okay, the time of war, all these things that were used for war are no longer going to be needed for war because the time of peace will be coming. And here's how, verse 6, for to us, a child is born. To us, a son is given and the government will be on his shoulders and he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace of the increase of his government and peace, there will be no end. He will reign on David's throne and over his kingdom, establishing and upholding it with justice and righteousness from that time on and forever. The zeal of the Lord Almighty will accomplish this. This is God's word. Amazing prophecy of hope. 700 years before that very first Christmas ever came to be. And yet it has such powerful truth for us today. 2,000 years on the other side of the dividing hinge of history. So what does that mean? What what does Isaiah have to say? And what does he have to tell us about Christmas today and how we celebrate it and how we deal with it? Three thoughts today I want to bring out from this text. The first thing is Christmas. Christmas is for people who don't feel like celebrating. Christmas is for people who don't feel like celebrating it. Remember the, the backdrop here. People in Israel probably didn't want to celebrate Christmas this day land in darkness, their families are going to be destroyed and homes are going to be overtaken. Nothing is going to be, it's, yesterday I saw pictures of, of Gatlinburg, Tennessee, right, before the fires and after the fires, and it was a tragic picture of before and after. And Isaiah is saying, there's going to be a day that's coming when what you see now is going to, it's going to look nothing like this. Everything is going to be laid low and it's going to be devastating. And people didn't feel like celebrating that day. Maybe you don't feel much like celebrating this Christmas. You feel like the Grinch has stolen your Christmas. When I was, before I moved down here, I was doing college ministry at a church in, uh, a church in Virginia. And uh, one year we were doing a Christmas party. The, the ministry I was overseeing was called Manna. It was a college ministry at our, at our church. And uh, we had this Christmas party and, and uh, the dress code, maybe it was a gift exchange. People could wear uh, green or red. Wear green or red and you know just have festive you can be goofy if you want ugly sweaters if you want to wear it but just christmas stuff there's a guy who called me up he was kind of uh, a little bit on the fringes of our ministry used to be pretty involved and then he moved away and he came back for christmas and he said he called me up and he said hey i want to i want to go to this christmas i heard you're having a christmas party where is it at so a little something about this guy uh, this guy is the most intense guy that i know always intense I can never relax, never chill. He's always like, ah, about everything. He's like, oh, my goodness, I'm like, uh, I don't know, whatever. Oh, my car, ah, is my car, and where's my keys? And I'll just come, I'll just intense about everything. He never knows how to dial it back. Another thing about him, he loves clowning people, right? Playing practical jokes on people, but he never knows, like, when to draw the line. So he's always, like, making, people end up crying, and he's like, what? It was just a joke, and he's just like, that's just the way he is. Another thing about him is that he can dish it real well, but he's not good at taking it. So someone makes fun of him. Somebody, uh, plays a joke on him. He gets really upset. He's intense about his upsetness, and he's like so angry. So I said, this is going to be really fun. So he said, what should, I, what should I bring? Should I bring some food? Should I bring a gift? Uh, what should I wear? What's the dress code? I said, yeah, you can bring food if you want. You don't have to. Food is taken care of. I mean, it's the, it's the day of, so you don't need to bring anything. But uh, if you want to bring a gift for a gift exchange, you can. But the dress code, it's semi-formal, so um, all of the guys are going to be wearing suits. He's like, all right, all right. And he's like, really, oh, i am be there, and I can't wait to see everybody. And, He rolls up there, uh, ding-dong. So we're all downstairs, like, uh, you know, doing stuff. And then uh, we had, in in Virginia, there's things called basements, which are underneath the main level. And so we're all hanging out there, this big area. Uh, Ding-dong, and and people run up to get the door in their crazy elf and Santa Claus outfits. And they see these two. There's a problem. Uh, He brought this guy who had never been to our church before. It was a complete outsider. And that dude was dressed in a suit also. (laughs) I thought, oh, my gosh, I feel so bad. So you got all these crazy college students running around with their blue, I'm sorry, their green and red, their elf hats, and looking like, you know, we're like Buddy the Elf from, from the movie Elf with Will Ferrell. And then these two cats come in looking like the men in black. I'm like, oh, my goodness. I thought it was really awesome to see my friend, like, sweating it out, but that other guy felt really bad. And I thought, man, they were, so the the whole night, the other guy, yeah, the new guy, he's playing it cool. He's like, you know, it's, it's, it's a joke and it's kind of funny. But my friend, the whole time, he was like stewing and steaming and angry. And he didn't want to celebrate and worship the Christmas child that day. He didn't want to sing these songs, oh, come all ye faithful. He was kind of upset. And he felt like, you know what, I don't really feel like celebrating this whole thing today. Kind of immature, right? But that's the way that he was. The Grinch indeed had stolen his Christmas. Maybe you feel like that this year. You feel a little bit out of place. Everybody else is celebrating and all around central Florida is being going to look a lot like Christmas. But you don't want to take part in it this year. You ever feel like that? I'm pretty sure. I'm pretty sure there's a good number of us who feel that way. Because the table around which we celebrated last year has one empty seat. This year, I don't really feel like celebrating. When I think of Christmas, I think of mom and dad, or I think of my kids. And, and this year, they're not able to be with us because we're in a different location. I don't really feel like celebrating this year. Maybe you don't feel like celebrating because while all these advertisements on TVs are talking about the newest toy set that you can get for your kid or the newest, you know, trinkets and the sales going on, as much as you want to give to the people that you love don't have the money to do it this year. And unlike last year, it doesn't feel like Christmas if I cannot get into the spirit of giving. Maybe you're worried, I can get into Christmas, but as soon as December 26 comes around, I don't know how I'm going to deal with the uncertainty of my job situation. I don't know what I'm going to do when my family leaves and I'm left all alone with just my spouse again. I don't know if we're going to make it to January 1st. There's a lot of us in here who may feel like, I don't want to celebrate Christmas this year. Can I remind you that the first Christmas came into a context like that, of people living in darkness, and everything changed because of one boy born in a manger. Because of that, nothing was the same. See, here's the great tragedy. God is saying, in the midst of the darkness, I'm giving you the one thing that you need. You don't need more people to try and figure out your stuff. You don't need greater ideas. You need a a light to come into the darkness. And he's going to come in the form of the Christmas Savior named Jesus Christ. Doesn't our world, a world of darkness, need that light now more than ever? A world of division, a world of pain a world of sorrow, a world of blame. Doesn't our world need a light? But here's the tragedy. Our world today is doing more than ever, whatever it can in order to take the light out of this season. Tim Keller cites this uh, New York Times article. He says, this is what Christmas is about. It's about the all victorious power of love that working together, we can create a better world and we can make a difference and we can change the course of history. It's true. We've done a lot of great things. Medical breakthroughs have eradicated certain illnesses, at least provided a vaccine for some of them. We've been able to tame and domesticate animals and, and, and use them to become our friends or use them for a uh, harness them for, for good purposes. We put a man, a, a person on the moon. We've done a lot of great things. But for as much as we've advanced as humanity, here's the reality that probably more harm is being done than good. Because human trafficking still exists because in the name of progress and advancement and intellect, genocide has wiped out entire groups of people. The murder of innocents, the slaughter of people who have no voice, all in the name of humanity and the beauties and the joys of social media and technology, have led to an ever-increasing sense of loneliness and isolation and depression because of things like cyberbullying, child pornography, adult pornography, whatever it might be. We are not the hope of the world. Humanity will never be. The problem is that's what King Ahaz thought. You know what? We're living in times of darkness. Our hope, we've got to fight together. We're going to put ourselves. To- God is saying, come to me and I'll give you the hope. They're saying, we can do it apart from you. Thank you very much. And the reality is that things have only gotten worse and worse and worse. God is saying, into the darkness, a light is breaking. And that light has come. And it's come for you. And it's come for all of us who are living in the land of darkness who don't feel like celebrating today. The first thing that I want to bring out to us, that wherever you are, whether you feel like celebrating or not, Christmas is for you for people who are jacked up, messed up, upside down, flipped on the wrong wrong side, for people like us. Because he knew that a light is exactly what we need. What did that look like? The second thing that we see is that Christmas is for people who just feel like no one understands, feel like no one understands. What would this light look like? Isaiah prophesied that it's going to come in a baby, born in a manger. Isn't that a lot? Of hope to put on one child. I know some people, you know, when I do marriage counseling, one of the things I say is, listen, hey, the best time to have a child is not when your marriage is falling apart. And maybe if we have a child, he or she can bring us together. Hey, that's not a good time. In fact, That's a worse time to have a child. That's a whole lot of hope to put on that child to save your marriage. Why would you put your adult problems on a child who's not able to handle your stuff? A lot of of expectation to place on one child. But to say that in the midst of the world's darkness, all of the light will be concentrated on one child. A lot of hope to put in one person. But that's exactly what God did. Exactly what he did. Who is this child? What child is this? Billy Sunday said in the Bible, there are 256 names given to Jesus. Because one or two or 10 or 20 or even 200 names could not encompass everything that he is. And so here we find four glorious names of who Jesus Christ is. Look at what it says in verse 6. He will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. We're going to look at each of these and, and open up the gift that is each of these over the next four weeks. But I want to talk about what does it mean that Jesus is a Wonderful Counselor? That's What I mean when I say that Christmas is for everyone who feels like no one understands. Isn't that what a counselor, a good counselor does? Is helps you to feel like someone understands. I had a friend when I was in seminary, he was a counselor. And, uh, you know, there's, there's obviously client uh, counselor confidentiality. But one of the things he was saying, he didn't mention anything specifically. But he was telling me of his frustration, that as he was a counseling student at the seminary, getting intern hours by counseling people, that there's this one couple that was very angry at him and they said, I don't want to see, we don't want to see you anymore because you have no idea how to counsel us because you're single and you've never been married. How do you know the struggles that we face? How do you know the the struggles and the challenges of of relating to your in-laws? How do you know the struggle to, you know, about sex and about money and about all of these different things that married people? How do you, how, how can you tell us what we ought to do when you have no idea the bed we sleep in at night. And he said, what I've been told in my counseling classes, yeah, I don't understand all of the experiences, but still counselors come and they counsel people who have had people murdered, but still, you know, that even though I have not experienced that I can counsel somebody through that. And this is what he said, because the, the emotions that human beings face, all of us are all the same. That's why I can understand. But to that couple, they said, no, you can't understand. You can't understand. You have no idea. I am talking. I feel like I'm talking to a wall who has no idea, no comprehension, no understanding of what I'm trying to say to you right now. And you're giving me advice. You're listening to me. But there's no sense in which you empathize or sympathize with what I'm feeling as I share these things with you. You ever feel that way? And you're sharing your heart with somebody, and they just they just don't seem to have a clue about what you're talking about. Some of the worst counsel I've ever given, I think back, and I, I cringe. I cringe. There's one pastor who says, every seven years, I burn my sermons because I had no idea what I was talking about then. And seven years later, I'll burn these sermons because I have no idea what I'm talking about. I think about my life when I was younger, when I was starting out in, in, in ministry, and in my, in my early 30s, I remember trying to talk to some of these married couples, trying to give them advice, trying to give them counsel, trying to correct them on what they're doing wrong about uh, how they're raising their children and how they're supposed to be worshiping When you know, instead of talking with other people. And, and they said, you know what, um, I'm not sure you really understand. Right? That, you know, There's one, one person who said to me, you know what, I don't think you really understand. You don't understand how hard it is. To be a parent, you don't understand what it's like to have the weight of anxiety and stress on your shoulders. You don't understand what it's like to fear what's going to happen when they, you know, they, they just went off on this diatribe. And I was like, oh my gosh. I was thinking that to myself. And I said, you're right. I don't understand. I don't understand. I was giving them, I think it was pretty sound advice. I mean, it's not anti biblical. But I was coming from a place where I had no idea. No idea the things that they were feeling as I was advising them so astutely from biblical truth about how they ought to live. And it makes sense that they didn't want to listen to what I had to say. Because a good counselor is somebody that actually understands what you're dealing with and who knows what you're going through and knows what you're experiencing. Because the worst thing, and when you can find somebody like that, I I send uh, several of our people, if I can't, if I can't, uh, if I'm not trained or if I'm, I can't help somebody to overcome certain hurdles after like three, four meetings with them, I say, hey, you know what? I've got a great network of Christian counselors that I can, I can refer you to who are able to take you to a better place of healing than I can. And I'll refer them. These are their expertise. These are their names. But at the end, I always tell them, hey, but, but listen, here's the most important thing about a counselor. As well-trained as they are, as experienced as they are, even if they have zero experience, the most important thing is your relationship and your rapport with them. If you feel like they can connect and you can connect with each other, then you should continue to go to them. But if you can't, right, regardless of how, uh, how, how certified they are, how an expert they are in, in their field, if you cannot connect with them and you don't feel like you have that rapport, then you should go see somebody else. But when you find somebody like that, man, it's a powerful thing. It's a powerful thing that can lead to healing, that can lead to growth, that can take you to the next level. But when you don't, it's one of the worst feelings in the world. Five years ago, a group of our people went on a mission trip and we experienced uh, probably the hardest thing that a group could experience on the mission field. We witnessed the, uh, the the loss of one of our people. And in the frenzy and the aftermath of all of these things, we came back home and, and had funeral arrangements and stuff like that and... And after things had calmed down a little bit, maybe a week or, or 10 days after, some, I forget the exact time frame, the denomination that we've been working with in that country said, uh, we, we strongly suggest you as a group see uh, a group therapist. And we have one who is highly specialized in trauma therapy, 17 years in grief counseling over events that have happened. And uh, she's in your area, and we would like to refer uh, you to her and her to you. So I was really excited. I said, you know, this is great because as much as our, 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 our group who was there needed counsel, I needed that too. I needed a place to, to be safe and to, and to share. And so this lady came in. I had such high expectations. 17 years of doing this, 17 years of blood and sweat and tears and dirt underneath the fingernails of having swept up bodies and, and been in that place. And, and as she started meeting with us for an hour and a half, she talked and talked and talked and talked. And I was like, this is the most painful experience of my life. This is awful. And then she would stop in the middle and she would ask our thoughts and at which point nobody wanted to say anything. But when someone broke the awkward silence, simply to break the awkward silence, as they talked, she cut them off mid-sentence. She finished their sentence. I mean... You don't need to be in counseling for 17 minutes, let alone 17 years, to know that you don't do this. Cutting them off, finishing sentences. Oh, I know what you're talking about. You don't know what we're talking about. And after she lectured us for an hour and a half, she said, I'm going to go next door. If anyone wants to come for personal one-on-one counsel, I'll be available. She walked out of there, and we just looked at each other like, what the nasty just happened. Like, that was Worse than the initial trauma. And and so I said, you know, if anyone wants to go over, feel free to go. But they're like, no, we're not going to go. We didn't need to. We didn't need all that for that. And so every now and then she would look into the door, right, through the window. And we would just ignore her, just ignore her. And about 30 minutes of her just sitting by herself, she came in and she's like, uh, just a reminder, I'm available next door if anyone wants to, wants to talk to me. I was like, girl, get out of here. What you tell me? Ain't nobody want to talk with you. <laughs> I said, thank you. Uh, thank you for that opportunity. Uh, we'll, we'll discuss, and if someone wants to, we'll, we'll go in there. But nobody did because I think at the end of the day, we just felt like she has no capacity in her to understand the pain and the grief and the loss, and the sorrow, and the rawness of emotion that we're feeling in this place. The only people that know are those of us who are there. Feel like we could counsel one another better than she could. One of the main things about being a counselor who's good at what they do is their ability to make you feel like, I understand, I understand. I'm with you in your suffering. I'm there with you. You remember in John chapter 11, there's a lady who's trapped in darkness. Her name is Mary. Her brother, her beloved brother, Lazarus, has just died. And she pleaded with God, with Jesus. She called him on his cell phone and said, Jesus, come right now. I need you. I need you. I need you. And Jesus came a little bit too late. And she's upset and she's angry and she's sad and she's sorrowful. And she said, Jesus, if you'd been here sooner, my brother wouldn't have died. And if there's one Bible verse that you may not have memorized up until this point in time, here it is for you and to memorize John eleven thirty five. Two words: Jesus wept. And in that place, no words were necessary, because in the silence and in the stream of tears that fell from the Savior's face, Mary understood that I'm in the presence of a Counselor who understands me. He knows. He knows. And perhaps that grief counselor five years ago, all she needed to do was just sit with us and weep. You see, Dorothy Sayers says, for whatever reason, God created this world and allowed us to fall into sin. One thing is clear. He didn't sit back in a sterile environment of heaven, but he entered into the brokenness and he entered into the fray. He was born in a manger. He understands poverty. He knows what it's like to have no money on Christmas. He knows what it's like to have a father pass away at a young age. He knows what it is to work hard. He knows what it is to not know where my next paycheck is going to come from. He understands that. He knows what it's like to have a stressful Christmas traveling, walking, riding on a donkey with mom and dad from one city to another. He understands. all. He knows what it's like to be bullied by people in positions of power. He knows what it is to be betrayed by friends who swore that they would be with you until death, but abandoned you on your night of greatest need. He understands all of those things. And if there's anything that Jesus does and he understands, and then to help you to know that you have a father in heaven who understands what it's like to lose a son in a tragic act of violent injustice, God allowed for his son to be nailed to a cross. So that you can never say, he doesn't know, he doesn't understand, he doesn't know the pain of loss that I feel. Because he knows the message of Christmas and the wonderful counselor is that Christmas is for anyone who feels like no one understands. Because he says, I do, I do. I do. You read the accounts of Jesus and every person that he talks to, he's showing he understands to a leprous person who he could have just with a spoken word healed them of their leprosy. It says, it says he touches them. Why? Because he knows the human condition, the condition of a leper to not know human touch for all these years. He touches them. So that in a touch, their soul is healed. And with a word, their bodies are healed. Every encounter Jesus has. He understands the brokenness of the human condition. He sees the suffering. He knows what we go through. He's a wonderful counselor. The last thing that we see in the wonderful counselor is that Christmas is for anyone, for people who don't know what to do. I don't know what I'm going to do. Because you see, it's great to have somebody empathize with you. But a lot of times we need a counselor who's going to just tell us what to do. We need guidance, don't we? Is there anybody here who needs counsel in the sense of, I don't know what to do next? I'm at a major crossroads in my life. This guy has been asking me to date him, but I'm not too sure. I'm wanting to get married maybe within the next couple of years, but God, is that what you want me to do? And is this the right person? I'm thinking about buying this house, but is it this neighborhood or that neighborhood? I'm thinking about uh, quitting my job, but is it the right thing to do to let go of this rope without having a, a fallback? Plan? What am I supposed to do? What do you do? What do you do when you don't know what to do? Where do you go? A lot of us will crowdsource on social media, Twitter, Facebook. Right? You can get a lot of good ideas. there. A lot of us will go to our friends. A lot of us will go to Google. Great place to go. But did you know that there are a lot of times when the answer that seems so right can ultimately end up wrong? You yeah, had times like that. This is the opportunity of a lifetime. This is perfect. Only to see it a couple years later go sour. I know that this is the right place to be because everyone has told me that all the stars are aligning and everything looks so great. But after a little bit, it all falls apart. You ever had a time like that before? I've had times like that before. The person you thought, and wasn't there, wasn't there a person you thought you were going to marry at one point? And the person sitting next to you is not that person. What happened? Proverbs 14, 12 says there's a way that seems right to a person, but in the end it leads to death. James chapter 1 says there's wisdom that comes from heaven that's different from the wisdom of the world. So different. First Corinthians 1 says the God's wisdom is different from the world's wisdom. In fact, If there was such thing as a foolishness of God, if there was such thing as God being foolish, even God's folly would be far superior to the wisdom of the world. And if that were possible, his foolishness would trump the wisdom of the world. Maybe there was a pun intended in that. Maybe not. I don't know. Whatever you think. But the foolishness of God, if there was such thing, is always going to be better than the wisdom of the world. Can you trust him? And there was a, when, I was, when I was graduating seminary, I think you know, some of you know about me uh, and, and why I'm here, but you may not know why I'm not somewhere else. There was a, an opportunity that I had. I'd been talking with a church up north, a uh, flagship church, uh, just a, a great church, been written up in, in books. And uh, the two people on staff were very dear brothers of mine, mentors. Everything that I know about preaching and, uh, came from these guys. He said, hey, we've got, a, we've got a spot for you. Right? Large church, lot of resources, a lot of money. <laughs> Except for the money. But golden opportunity. Right? You could do these things. You could do those things. Here are the things that you could do. You'd be close to your family. And to a man, it was perfect. Perfect. As I prayed about it and sought the counsel of the wonderful counselor who is God, I began to feel uneasy about this. Why? On paper, it's the best position. On paper, you're going to be trained and you're going to be mentored and you're going to be supported in ways that it would be such an amazing place. Why not? What a very difficult decision. I had to tell my friends. I said, sorry, guys, I don't think I can go. I don't think I can go. Did it make sense to me to explain it to them? It it wasn't really I wasn't able to really make sense of it, but they just knew, they understood. Yeah, sometimes there's things beyond what we can explain. And Within a few months, both of those brothers who were at that church ended up leaving to go to different places. And if I had known when I was graduating what I knew a few months later, I never would have even entertained that thought. But I didn't know. But I had a wonderful counselor who did. So do you. He has a counsel for every crisis. He's got a plan for every problem that you face. He's got advice for any situation that you have. And the question is, are you going to him? You have a wonderful counselor. You have somebody who not only weeps with you, but he comes alongside of you with wisdom and with words to guide you. But are you going to him? You see, in that same chapter, John 11, Mary had a sister. Her name was Martha. And she said to Jesus the exact same thing. Jesus, if you had been here, this wouldn't have happened. And Jesus, knowing that Mary and Martha were two very different people, responded to Mary with weeping. But he responds to Martha with words. I am the resurrection and the life. Anyone who believes in me Though they die, will live again. Do you believe this? She said, I believe. This is what Jesus does in a way that only the most wonderful of counselors do. There's a beautiful wedding of empathy and understanding with counsel and guidance that you so desperately need. And just say, oh, you coming again? Here's the answer. Go and do it. No, he weeps with us. Keller says, truth wedded with tears. That's how Jesus comes wisdom with weeping, how he comes. In fact, this language of a wonderful counselor means that he is a wonder of a counselor beyond the ability for words to say. He is a counselor that makes us say, wow. That's what literally it's saying. Have you experienced the wow of God in your life as you've gone to him for counsel? You look back at the trail of your life and you're like, I would have never made that decision. I would have never gone this way. Never would have gone that way. Never would have zigged. I would have zagged. I never would have. But you look back at your life and you're like, wow. Wow. That's the wisdom of God. You have this kind of a wonderful counselor. The wisdom of the world is not the same as the wisdom of God. We had a Uh, a a gal, a worker in Afghanistan that we were supporting many years back. She was crazy for Jesus. She was a single white female, not in the movie, but she was a single white female and she wanted to go to Afghanistan. Her heart was first for the Middle East. And as she began seeking the counsel of the wonderful counselor, God honed in the focus from the Middle East, to Afghanistan, to Afghan women. Women who... Never know what it is to be called beautiful because their faces are always covered. And she said, I don't know anything about this, but the Lord is leading me to cosmetology school. She went and learned how to cut hair, and she went to Afghanistan in order to work with women to let them know they're beautiful, even though their culture tells them that they're not. But before she went, as she was, uh, you know, she came to our church and she was going to share her testimony, before she went up, He said, you know what? This is really hard because no agency in America wanted to send me out there. They said, you're a single female going to the Middle East. We can't do that. And she fought with them and she fought with them and she fought with them and she pushed back. And she said, listen, okay, I understand your concern, but in the place I'm going, people like me, missionaries, we're not talking about rape. They will kidnap me and they will kill me. And they will do that whether I'm a male or a female. So let me go, because to me, Jesus is worth it. I'm like, dang, that's pretty impressive. And She went up on stage and she started talking about the call that God had given to her life. And she played this video, not this video, but she played a video. <laughs> uh, it was basically slideshow pictures and stuff like that. And it was set to a, a song called, crazy by mercy me. I love this song. There's one part of the song that says, I have not been called to the wisdom of this world, but to a God who's calling out to me. And even though the world may think I'm losing touch with reality, it would be crazy to choose this world over eternity. Wow. That's Spirit-driven, wonderful counsel from God. The Lord blessed her ministry like crazy. She met a man out there, got married, and is doing some great work overseas presently. But the wisdom of the world is not the same as the wisdom of God, guys. You have access to a counselor that has time and time again made people say, wow, that's amazing. That's crazy. I never would have in my wildest dreams planned it that way. In fact, this is terrible. I would have never planned this. But you look back on it a year later and you'd be like, holy cow. I'm so glad that I submitted to the wonderful counselor because he takes these jacked up dark situations and then he blasts the light onto them and then we see That what they meant for harm, he meant for good in my life. It would be crazy. In fact, some of the craziest things that God has done. Man, look up there. That's God wrapped in cloth, lying in a manger, surrounded not by the royalty of the nations, but by animals and by shepherds, smelly people who can't get along with people, so their job is to play with sheep. That's the wisdom of God. And in the wisdom of God, what the kingdom of darkness thought was going to be the death of the kingdom of light, light being snuffed out on the cross. Matthew 27, 56 says, In on the cross, when Jesus died, darkness fell over the earth. The light of the world stepped into darkness. And on the final day of his life, when hell was rejoicing, they thought. That they had won. It was crazy. But his cross meant death for the kingdom of darkness. And a cross meant to kill is now our victory. Every person born into this world is born and will die. But he's the one person on planet earth who ever came who was born to die. The only reason he came was to die in our place for our sins, to take our consequences, for our misdeeds, so that in rising again, everything that he deserved because of his perfect obedience has been given to you and to me. And that flows through the hands of a counselor who's wonderful. Will you trust him? Will you believe him? Will you go to him? Let's pray. Sad reality, guys, is, you you could hear this message. There's a book called Change or Die. And in it, this, uh, this author says, did all these studies and he, he researched people whose doctors told them, listen, if you don't change your lifestyle, you're going to die. He said, what percentage of people change their lifestyle to follow the instructions of their doctor in order that they might live and not die? He said, only 10% do. That's Crazy. 90% of people would rather die than to change. This morning, what about you? What about me? What about us? God is calling us to no longer pursue the wisdom of this world, to no longer pursue the things of this life, to no longer do what the world says because the wisdom of God is high above. Do you trust him? And Do you believe him? And will you not only listen to him, will you do what he says? Trusting that you'll look back on your life and say, wow. Wow, he knew so much better than me. What a wonderful counselor he is. Spend a few moments coming before the Lord right now in prayer, responding to his word. What area of your life do you need counsel? What area of your life are you confused? What area of your life do you have a decision that you need to make? And and maybe you've already made that decision according to the wisdom of the world. Maybe God is telling you, hey, on paper, looks like a good decision. But pray. Pray about it. Maybe I'll confirm that. Maybe I'll change that. But don't you want to do what the wonderful counselor says is best for you? Let's spend a few moments praying right now. If you this completely misses my boat. You know people in your life that are in need of wisdom. Pray for them right now. Pray for yourself that in the time when you will need to make a decision, Lord, I would trust and go to and listen to and obey my wonderful counselor. Maybe others of us, we're not in the mood to celebrate Christmas this year. It's a perfect backdrop for Christmas. See that there's hope. It's not in people. It's not in your family. It's not in your friends. It's in him. It's in Jesus, the light of the world. came into your darkness to give you hope. Let's pray together for a few moments right now. Half a minute, a minute, whatever you need. Let's pray. Let's really seek our wonderful counselor right now. Lord, I need you. Let's pray for that for a few moments. Uh, take a moment to pray if there's any unconfessed, unrepented sins in your heart. If you come in this morning feeling saddled with guilt, broken relationships, things that you've said, attitudes that you had this morning, things that you did or said that the Spirit of God may be reminding you of, we're going to come to the table of God's grace. Grace requires that we come honest before the Lord and honest with ourselves, knowing that we need help. We need a Savior. Spend a few moments preparing our hearts in repentance so that we can come to the table in a manner worthy of the Lord Jesus, whose body was broken, bloodshed, for your sins, for mine. Spend a few moments repenting, asking the Lord to purify our hearts, our conscience, so that we can come to this table full of hope, full of life to receive what he has for us. Let's pray for another moment before we come to this table. Father in heaven, we thank you so much. And because we couldn't fix ourselves and we couldn't make our world a better place. Because we kept on messing up and kept on hurting each other. Kept on hurting ourselves and most of all we kept on hurting you. And you that into a world of darkness you sent the blazing light of your son Jesus Christ. To enter into this world of darkness that the darkness could not overcome no matter how hard it tried. Thank you that the light of the world continues to shine in the midst of our darkness 2,000 years after he first came into this world. Thank you that in every nation around the world, people bow before this king and worship him and delight in him and declare and proclaim that he is the true and living God and there is no other. Father, surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, may we arise and may we awaken to the hope that is found in Christ. May we live as people of hope. May we live as people of light. May we no longer dance around in darkness, but may we rejoice in the marvelous light that shines in our hearts and that shines for the world to see. Thank you so much. We love you because you've loved us first. You are our wonderful counselor. Lead us and guide us. In Jesus' name we pray.